Welcome to the 1 million euro stories. I am Eris. I talk to people from the business world about their mission and money and their rise to success. I love to talk about venture capital, sales, the psychology of marketing, tech ecosystem, and the matrices of success. I am welcoming our guests to the studio. Welcome, introduce yourself. Hi, yeah, so my name is uh, Mark Mondi. Um, founder and CEO of a startup called Amitrak, uh, based out of Nairobi in Kenya. Yeah, so can you tell me a little bit uh, about Amitrak and how you came to start it? Yeah, so um, it's a bit of a long-winded story, um, so I'm not going to go into some of the personal background, but um, uh, it sparked some interest. I, I drove a truck to put myself in school. So years later, when I decided I wanted to go into entrepreneurship, one of the areas that came to light was uh, transportation. And that was primarily because we had family friends in the business. Um, we noticed there was initially um, the problem presented itself as three uh, middlemen, three informal middlemen between a cargo owner and uh, a transporter. And these guys cause all sorts of um, problems. Um, first of all, they can take more than half the cost of the delivery, which means it makes it very expensive for the cargo owner and the transporter things they've been paid too little. Um, secondly, if anything happens, uh, it's very difficult for the cargo owner to get compensated. So if there's damage or loss, it's very difficult. And then finally, the search costs were quite high. That is to say, um, all the transporters complaining they can't find loads and most of the load owners having a problem finding transporters. So it's actually quite an interesting way to, um, to solve for two things at the same time. So what Amitrak did is it bridged that gap. It reduced the sad costs. It allowed a transporter's experience to influence where he sits in terms of quality uh, and for customers to understand that pretty quickly. And then we also act as um, uh, uh, as a, a, a way in which a cargo owner can consistently, reliably get uh, transport for their goods. Um, so yeah, that's that's how the idea sort of came up, and that's what we're doing today. Yeah. So because when you're saying to me like that you were sitting on a truck, so how came that about that you were sitting on a truck and initializing this idea to to create this big startup? No, no, we, we weren't sitting on a truck. So I came home and there was a friend in. The cement business and in the cement business trucking is quite a big part of what they do and he was complaining so that brought the problem to light mm. and then in investigating the problem the gap became clear and looking at what the other players were doing in the space we felt like we could do something better and that's why we implemented Amitrak and basically we're using tech to reduce some of the headaches transport um, cargo owners and transporters have so for cargo owners, they can reliably, consistently get uh, competitively priced transport without going through the 
manual processes of walking outside their gates, talking to informal brokers. Um, additionally, it means that when they use the platform, um, they know who's load, who's 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 carrying the load. They know who's driving it. They're identified. They're vetted. It's secure. It's insured. And if anything happens, they're protected. Um, and then for the transporter, similarly for them, we connect them with customers they would not normally be able to uh, access. So these are customers who are either outside their networks or just where you need to be a bit more formal to work with, for example, a multinational FMCG company. Um, and you can take a transporter in rural Kenya, uh, bring them up to speed with vetting and training and allow them to work for a large company. Mm -hmm. So for the transporter, you're giving him work. And because he's working with you in your formal business, he's, he's assured of getting payment and fair treatment, right? And he is also able, actually, to look at a customer's history and other drivers' rating of that customer. So he doesn't necessarily also get himself exposed. Yeah, so it's a two-way street. Uh, which is really good. And yeah. what I just found out when you said, like, you know, when you were talking to a person who was having problems, so you would really listen really carefully, like I'm hearing you say, what he was complaining about. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's, a, it's interesting, but for us, that, that that's never stopped. Um, and I think you just keep learning and you keep going and you, you, you get a better and better understanding of the problems you're dealing with by listening to the users. Yeah, because I heard from a lot of successful founders that they take a lot of time to listen to that problem, to find out what the gap is. Um, when you were moving into that market, how was it for you to do your first uh, initial steps? When you saw that problem, you saw like, okay, I can do something about it. I mean, I always hear this as an exciting moment, you know? How yeah. were your first steps into the market? Yeah, I mean, I, I, now we're funded and we're quite a few and big team. Um, but at the time we were working out, out of my... Um, <laughs> okay, so a little history here. So I, before I started Amitrap, I was actually working in banking in the United Kingdom. And I stopped that to come and do, uh, to get into entrepreneurship. And then I moved back because of Amitrap. Initially, our office was in my brother's living room. <laughs> <laughs> and then we quickly filled that up and pretty much got picked up by my sister-in-law and um it's it's sort of been upwards from there so when i think back to that time the first i still remember my our first customer was a young lady moving house actually and she took a pickup and i think in that month we made the grand sum of equivalent in dollars probably 20 dollars in gmv so <laughs> it was uh, quite, quite interesting. I, I even remember sending each other emails just to make sure the email worked. And yeah, because it, I always say it's always special when you have your first money coming in. Also, it's $20. You need to start somewhere. You do. Um, so you, you left your job as an investment banker. Yeah. Because you were an investment banker, how was that for you prior because you had a different kind of life. Yeah. Um, at least I knew how to take a little bit of stress, which was helpful. Um, but really, the when you say banker investment, I mean, I actually think they should just be called analysts. 
because really all you do is, is is analytics. You're sort of sitting there going through um, uh, companies, markets, economies, comp competitive dynamics, uh, financial modeling, and you do that almost all the time as you're trying to price um, instruments. Um, so I think some of that experience has been very useful in terms of how to think about the business, where you position yourself, understanding competitive threats, um, uh, just, just having that background of being able to look at things objectively within a market, uh, I think comes in very handy when you become an entrepreneur. Yeah, I think because if you can look at that at the market and to see how to analyze your competitors, to see which position you have, to see where the gap is, I think it's a valuable uh, knowledge and experience to take with you. Yeah, it is. And also it helps to respond to shocks because mm -hmm. you kind of have done it before. So like I went through the uh, GFC, the great financial crisis, um, I'd been through, you know, oil spikes and also things. So I kind of know when to panic and when not to panic from things <laughs> that are happening around me. <laughs> yeah. So let me say that because when you're like an investment banker and you're analyzing it, and of course, as an entrepreneur, you need that as well to analyze yeah. the market, to know what is happening. So how do you distinguish when you need to panic and not to panic? Well, it's just that I know when I see a headline, how bad it is. So for example, this week we had um, Silicon Valley Bank. And I think there's been one more. And for us, that was quite a big deal. Um, I know the US has stepped in, that it looks okay, but I'm not sure that we've really seen the, I'm not sure we've seen the second and third order effects of what happened with that. So understanding how to position yourself in terms of where, where do you keep your money, how do you hold it, um, thinking through how can I mitigate some of the risks that might come with it. Yeah, did it have a lot of impact on your own business? Uh, no, but um, so you like this one. <laughs> what? So for an African business trying to open, um, so most, most startups are registered in Delaware. It's a requirement because most of the money comes from the U.S. So from U.S. Produce, um, come from the, comes from the U.S. Uh, market. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's quite difficult to get set up, especially we were doing it during COVID. So you can't exactly apply that. So you kind of have to set your company up and then you have to open a bank account. And the U.S. have very... Uh, let's call them rigorous with African companies. And we actually applied very lengthy application to um, SVB, Mercury, and Wise, the digital banks. And um, Mercury and Wise accepted us and Silicon Valley Bank, which is actually our past choice, rejected us <laughs> so, <laughs> the only reason we don't have, didn't have money in Silicon Valley Bank was because they turned us down because I think they did not believe we were a real company. Oh my God. I mean, you must be really happy now that they, that they rejected you. <laughs> yeah, I'm really happy. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes you don't know why, huh? Huh? I said sometimes you don't know why that rejection is there, but you know, if you yeah. look at it now, 
Yeah. No, luck is, uh, I think luck is, I've, I've always maintained that luck is, you know, the 10% of hard work and uh, pushing and passion, you, you can't do without because that's what, that's what, you know, it's like trying a lot of doors to switch on is open, but finding that lucky door is 90% of luck, you know, and you need luck in, in entrepreneurship. Better to be lucky than right. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. So when you, you know, start growing, you know, Amitruck and the first, and you started with the first customers, how did you do it uh, with the financing? How, how did you get it off the ground? Yeah, so initially we had a lot of cash payments, so we would make customers pay uh, immediately, um, even before we did the transportation. Uh, that, And then as the business began to grow and get to the point where my personal assets weren't enough, um, we were lucky enough to uh, close a, a small round, and then it was much easier from then on. So once we had the past our uh, institutional investors on board, it was much easier to raise the following following rounds. And then it's not been a problem since. So how did you did them? Because this is what I hear from a lot of founders to get to your first funding. Yeah, I mean, we bootstrapped, right? So I put yeah. money in and um, we hoped we'd find a solution before the money ran out and we did. But um, yeah, we bootstrapped. So we walked out of a house, we kept costs low. Um, we did a lot of very unscalable things, but yeah, we, it got us here. And what kind of unscalable things did you do? Uh, I mean, I was, uh, so I guess we were three to start with. Um, two engineers and myself. So I was finance, sales, everything, you know, so uh, crafting out the product strategy, thinking through actually doing the sales myself. So I wasn't, I didn't hire a team. Um, I'm probably still, I'm probably still the top salesman in the team. In the business, <laughs> but, um, and it's, you know, so we didn't have things like an official HR. We didn't have, uh, we kind of got a favor for accounting from someone. And so you just did, you know, there was just things that were just never going to be able to last, but they got you from where you needed to get. And then, and then you fixed it. Yeah. So how did you get your first investment, your first official investment? Yeah, this is a, this is a question that comes up a lot. Um, I think with great difficulty, <laughs> Uh, I think we approached about 300 venture capital firms. Uh, we managed to speak to about 70 or 75 of them. Uh, we were we went into finals discussions with about uh, three, two of which turned us down, and the last one said they only follow. <laughs> oh, they only follow. Oh God, I've heard that before. <laughs> And that they so, only follow, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a process that took sort of 12, I think over 12 months. It was pretty heartbreaking. And um, just as I was thinking, how am I going to do this again? An investor wrote in um, and asked to meet. The, the, then they wrote again. And I think it wasn't until the, they started doing reference checks that I believed they were going to invest. And then I realized, hold on, they spent like eight hours. <laughs> wow. And then they made us, they made an investment. And they've been a really good investor to have. And 
they've been very, very supportive. And um, we were very lucky as a company to get that, that farm on board. Because they approached you, um, those investors. Yeah, so yeah, they, they approached us. And how was how much was the, the, the initial investment? Um, so this was a pre-pre-seed. Mm -hmm. um, and we never disclosed back then. I'm, I'm not gonna disclose it now, but it was it was it was a five-digit number. We just started. No, how they actually were really they actually were really straightforward. And you know, they yeah. I think investors sometimes get a bad rap. So I'm gonna call them out. I think so. We got a we 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 our first investor was Dynamo VC. And actually they called me and said, we really want to support you, but don't do a big round. You're too small. So here's a really small check. Go grow your business and come with your round. And that's exactly what we did. And, and they were really good at it. And there were times when we grow too fast and within like a few weeks, they'd write a check because we need the money because we're growing so fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and they do it on the terms they did it back when we were smaller. Um, so they were really, really supportive and um, they're really great guys. Oh, so they did a follow-up as well when you needed it. They've invested in every round after that, but they fast got us to a size where investing wouldn't dilute us too much. Yeah, because you need to think about the dilution as well when yes. you're going through your rounds. Yeah. yeah. But it is really important to have investors not only who invest money but also knowledge and you know how you go about your rounds and what you're doing and supporting you yeah it is um and actually it's the it's the sort of the it's the sort of the unspoken things that are helpful like crisis management um dealing with bad news and scary events um understanding intricacies like valuation where should you sit um, financing, debt financing, um, and generally operations. And I think when you have VCs who have quality portfolios, uh, one of the best things that can happen is they cross-pollinate the founders. Mm -hmm. So that really helps because then, especially for because Africa is slightly behind the US, you know, um, meeting with the successful companies, some of which might be unicorns, and asking them how do you do this and then they just show you <laughs> yeah. because you're the same you're in the same portfolio is really useful yeah because if you take the time to figure that out on your own it costs a lot of time and money that's right and you might not figure it out no <laughs> it's a different point of view and did you i was wondering did you take time to go to an incubator or an accelerator yeah, that's, yeah. So again, lucky here because we've been. Um, so initially, we went to um, uh, there's there's one in uh, oh, what is it called? Uh, there's an online one that we did that was really good for raising money, and I should probably check what they're calling and 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 call them out. Then we went into um, Ninja, which is um, the JICA, the Japanese. Um, uh, uh, investment corporation uh, uh, accelerator. Then we did Google for Startups Africa, and then we did uh, Black Founders Fund Accelerator, which is also Google for Startups. Um, and and yeah, so we've been in quite a lot. I think I've done about five. 
they're good for several things. I think the most useful thing I got out of them was uh, learning how to raise. I think that was important. Uh, I think the second thing I got, and actually probably the most valuable thing I got, was a network of founders in a similar stage. So that's been very useful. And those chat rooms are awesome because it means you have people who, especially for the pre-seed area. So if, for example, if you need help with a legal issue, um, there'll be four other guys who dealt with it already. And they don't just tell you how to do it. They tell you where to go and who to speak to and what to expect. Yeah. But they kind of just give you a solution straight away. Um, so for the non-business specific stuff, they're also very useful. And then finally, Google One is epic because they give you access to their global experts. So that that's really helpful. Yeah, because you say that Google was epic. What kind of things did you learn there that you say like, wow, this helped me so much? No, they just literally have experts at Google and everything. So if you want to, if you want your sales team to be trained. They have a network of salespeople who are really experienced at training. This is the best bit. So if you, we were doing a small um, neural network and we were given access to their AI engineers. Um, if you are talking about product market fit, you know they give you access to the product team, and they, you know they give you an expert who spends time with you. And you set your, of course, it's OKRs because it's Google. You set your OKR and the objective is to sort of the products. The key results will be whatever they are. And they run you through that in the program. And then at the end of the program, they come back and check if you hit what expectations you had agreed at the beginning. Okay. They're working with the OKRs or with the KPIs to really Everything. help you. Yeah. yeah. And let's, let's not forget, they put a few, they put out, I think it's up to $100,000 in for no equity. Okay, you get $100,000 for non-equity, you get that. Yeah. And the experts and access Plus and to And the network. And they still call, they still check on us. Um, I still have access to them. Um, so yeah, they're just a useful. And they also put you on the map, right? So if you go through Google, if you're selected, you know, I think it kind of gives you some, some sort of credibility that, you know, you're doing something. Yeah, I think that... Still, uh, an external validation for your company helps as a name recognition in the market. Um, so I can, you know, that's, that's really important. And if you, you look at how much money did, did Emmy Truck raise in total? Hmm. Uh, probably uh, at this point, probably five and a half million dollars. So still quite small, five and a half million. Well, it's still... Um, amazing steps that you have made. Yes, it is. Yes. I'm very proud of what the team and I have achieved. Yes. Because, you know, I've talked to a lot of different founders and the to-do list where you want to go is like endless. That's right. So do you take moments to uh, celebrate your different milestones you reach? Yeah, I think the key word there is moment. <laughs> <laughs> we're jumping back on the list <laughs> and actually what's what's really disappointing is the list gets longer the older you get as a company because then you realize just how crappy areas of the business are that probably never even bothered you to start with um and and then you realize you could do this so much better so that list just keeps getting more detailed and longer as um 
as the business evolves, which is a bit disappointing. I hope it got shorter. Yeah, because the thing is, like I'm talking to a lot of founders, the to-do list is like endless. Yeah. So are, are there moments in a year or somewhere else that you take time to sit with what is and what you already have accomplished? Um, yeah, so we don't we don't quite do that, but we do keep so we, we keep a close eye on what's on that list, um, what would kill us, um, what could kill us now, what might be. So I I, I use the, I can't remember who came up with this system, but you have important and unimportant, and then you have urgent and non-urgent, and I always yeah. make sure I deal with important. And of course, important, urgent, fast. So as you think of a grid and you've got important, non-important, urgent, non-urgent, you make sure you deal with important, urgent immediately, but you never leave important, non-urgent undone. So that can still hurt you in the future. And then for the non-important, you just don't do them. So you have to find a way to prioritize. Yeah, because you say you're also looking at the list with what could kill you. Yeah, it's better now. But yeah, when we first started, um, there was always imminent death around the corner. So yeah, oh. we had to deal with that. Um, and what kind of things were on the corner where you needed to look out for? Well, you know, if a customer is displeased, then you have three, you know, you can have your sales. Um, if you run out of cash, it's quite bad. So when you increase it, I actually think we don't celebrate the pre-seed rounds enough and we celebrate the larger ones too much. Because I think the fast rounds are the hardest mm -hmm. to get over and, and the most important for a business because that's when it's really critical. Yeah, because you need to get started. You need to get that first money and you need to get that first capital. Yeah, that's right. um, So, yeah. So now I just, I'm just like picturing you when you're looking at what can, can kill you and looking everywhere around the corner. Because if I just remember right, when you were talking about the investment banking, you talked about analyzing um, mm -hmm. the financial things and risk. Is it that you had learned there a lot from there to look at it that way? Yeah, I think so. I think there's that. Um, first of all, you, first of all, I spent days and days just talking to a lot of the top CEOs in the world about their businesses. And I did that for many, many years. And these are some of the brightest, uh, sharpest guys around. Then within, um, your, the, the, within banking itself, the caliber of person that you um interact with on a day-to-day -day basis is you know they're really smart they're really smart if i miss one thing about that life it's just the quality and caliber of your colleagues was just incredible so you found people who had really achieved a lot academically and then been competitive enough to manage to get into banking and work their way in and such people tend to be of course smart and Eventually, they're very experienced and a breath of fresh air when you have a debate with them. Mm -hmm. So I think all that comes back and really um, contributes to how you think today.
Yeah, because that helps a lot to look at the market, to look at the steps you need to step. And like you said, with that quadrant, which things are important and urgent mm -hmm. and things you need to do now. So if you, um, if you look now back on your fundraising journey, how would you describe it? Um, it's like crawling through glass naked. <laughs> Why? It's just hard. Um, it's just a really hard thing to do. And unfortunately, I think it's going to get worse. I don't think the changes in the macroeconomics in the US, Europe, because of Ukraine is going to make it easier. I think we, we're now competing as an asset class with much more attractive assets. So interest rates are up, you're now competing with savings and money market funds and equity markets are weak. So you're competing with debt and equity um, of more uh, mature businesses. Um, and then there's less cash to go around. So uh, that makes it even harder going from here. And I think the other thing that definitely didn't help is this SVB thing. So I hope there are no um, uh, long-term effects, although it looks like it's washing over and they should have really guaranteed a lot faster than they did. But the reason it's hard is because there's a numbers game where you have to speak to so many initially. Um, and I think it's just that fast round that's really difficult to do. Now, we were lucky because Dy Dynamo came and reached out to us and um, and then after that, it, was, it wasn't too bad. But before you have your networks in place, that first round is oh, torture. After that, they get easier. And I say easy, I'm not saying easy. They get easier. Okay. <laughs> easier. Easier. You know, I think just... when people hear that 97% or, or something like only 2% of startups get funding, they don't realize it's 98% of them can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for the venture capitalist, he's got money, but he can't fund everybody. So he's got to whittle down to the one he's going to fund. So, so you have this, you know, uh, yeah. So it just makes it harder and harder for founders to um, to close on on around. How can you, how do you keep yourself motivated in in these kind of times? Um. I think you just have a good team and colleagues who are as driven as you. And if you're focused on raising and someone else is focused on the business and they're doing their part, um, then you, you feel the need to do yours. I, I left banking for a cause, not really because the only, I'm not saying I'm not interested in uh, financial returns, but at the same time, it wasn't the primary reason I left. Um, I left to build something, to live a legacy, to do something more meaningful with my time. And that probably keeps me going because I, I promised my team, I promised my customers, my investors that I'm going to deliver on a specific thing. And that actually motivates me more, trying to keep that word uh, to myself and to, my, uh, uh, to the other stakeholders than anything else. So what you're delivering with Amitra to your customers and your team, which you're working with. Yes. And my investors, and, of course. And the investors, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those are important as yeah. well. How was it for you to build up your team? Um, it's hard. Um, 
there's a lot of talent, but it's difficult to get to the quality ones. Um, the good thing is for tech, uh, the tech, 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 tech guys, tech hires seem to be a lot easier in Africa, I think. Um, but the rest, the more softer skills, so the things that you can't control for in a in an in an aptitude test, um, drought, uh, um, comp competitiveness. Um, uh, uh, what's the right word here? Uh, you know, like governance, honesty, in, um, integrity. Uh, so these are some of the places where it's easy to fall. And sometimes I feel like they, but maybe it's the background I come from where the level of work and rigor expected is quite high. Um, and then sometimes I feel like hmm, the rigor isn't quite there. And that's what we, those are sort of things we struggle with. Attention to detail at a level that is global. Yeah, so you're saying when you hire tech people, you can have a test to see how much knowledge they have of the tech, so that's clear. But if it's soft skill with honesty and integrity, it's harder to know from very the beginning. Hard. It's very yeah. hard. And my brothers and sisters can tell a story, so don't worry. But what do you articulate as a mission to the people you hire? Yeah, so I think we actually don't really use the mission to hire that much. Um, ours is um, enabling access to markets. I think before that, it was uh, trust and transparency. Um, we have a set of principles that we run the business by, and we have um, expectations that um, we'll deliver, we'll, we'll always do what we say we will. Mm -hmm. So if we tell a customer we'll deliver, we'll deliver. If we tell investors we'll do this, we do it. And, and that's the kind of thing that we use in the um that we use in the in, in the interviews and just explaining that if you're looking for a nine to five job, probably not the place for you. I mean, we lay that out from day one. If you're looking to you know follow a cause to change transport and to really have an influence on how this thing plays out to build something great, then you're in the right place. But you've got to be ready. You can't just say you've got to be ready. And yeah, we're still fighting with it and we hope to improve and yeah. Still work in progress. Yeah. So um, before we wrap up, just the questions, the last questions. Um, what are you the most proud of if you look at your entrepreneurial journey? Um, Uh, the team I put together, especially at the moment, is really solid. So to look around and think, yeah, I can depend on most of you is quite nice. Mm -hmm. um, I think surviving crisis, so surviving COVID, I'm pretty optimistic we'll survive this one as well. Um, and then finally, getting started. I think that's the easiest place to get stuck, actually, is, you know, resigning and leaving a job and going off with a deck. <laughs> yeah, this is quite a journey. Is there any last thing you want to say to our listeners? 
No, just to thank you. Um, thank you very much for um, uh, inviting me to this podcast and for making it interesting. Uh, appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome. So thank you so much, Mark. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. This was an episode of the One Million Euro Stories. There is a new world to unlock. Let's believe. Let's be bold. Let's be fierce. Let us open a new door. I am Aris from the One Million Euro Stories. Thank you for listening. And if you want to make sure that you know when a new episode comes out from the One Million Euro Stories, click on subscribe on your podcast app. And you will be notified when a new episode comes out. Thank you for listening. And I will see you next time.